Welcome to the Sick to Death podcast, a history of medicine in 10 objects, which are on display at our brand new medical museum in the heart of historic Chester. Sick to Death is supported by the Wellcome Trust. Now, buckle yourselves in. This is going to be a gory ride. On the 19th of August 1947, Nazi SS officer and physician Karl Brandt, along with six others, was found guilty of crimes against humanity and sentenced to death by hanging. For weeks, attendees at the trial in Nuremberg had heard testimony about unthinkable acts of cruelty that Brandt and his colleagues had inflicted on those held within Nazi concentration camps. Against the backdrop of the Holocaust, they had experimented on human beings against their will, deliberately infecting them with disease, conducting unnecessary and fatal surgery, as well as the transplantation of bones, the removal of organs and a whole litany of other abhorrent acts. The Nuremberg trials shocked the world and the acts of those trained to care, not harm, represent yet another of medicine's legacies of brutality. In this final episode, we'll journey to the second half of the 20th century to explore unprecedented medical achievement, but it's important we remember the terrible as well as the terrific, because the story of medicine is complex and uncomfortable. The Nuremberg trials took place, for example, as the wheels were put in motion for a national health service in Britain. We'll explore this and the establishment of the World Health Organization before taking a closer look at cancer. Let's first find out what our sick to death object is. Dean Patton, this is our final episode of the podcast. You are the head honcho at Sick to Death. This has been an absolute pleasure to create this podcast series with you. Can you tell us the final object of the series? So this object is something that's probably everybody's seen. It's a syringe, but it's specifically it's an insulin syringe from the late 1960s. It's quite important because it was one of the first sets of disposable syringes before these come to pass. The people had to kind of reuse them, sterilize them, sharpen them. And so the safety aspect of managing insulin diabetes was increased massively it was much safer much easier but that came about really as a result of the national health service because people no longer had to worry about the cost of of doing this so the nhs is possibly the greatest thing that's ever happened in in, in british society i think that a lot of people would argue that's the case anyway it's the envy of the world it changed revolutionized healthcare for for britain and uh this syringe is a little symbol of, of one aspect of how the NHS has really, really helped so many, many people's lives. Of course, medical care did exist before the NHS, but it came in many forms. Before the NHS, Britain had a very strong hospital system. Probably it had the largest hospital system in the world in terms of volume per head of the population, number of beds. That's Professor Barry Doyle, Professor of Health History at the University of Huddersfield. It's a very complex system in the sense that there were sort of three main types of hospital. There were general hospitals, which treated the majority of acute sick people. Uh, They were known as voluntary hospitals and were funded 
by voluntary contributions from the general public, but also increasingly they were funded by workers' insurance schemes and then also by direct payment by patients. Um, there are also infectious disease hospitals, which are becoming less important by the uh, 1940s. These are mostly focused on children, and these are funded directly by local authorities. Tuberculosis hospitals fit into that. And then there is the relics of what was called the poor law system. This is a, a range of um, poor law institutions, infirmaries, as they were called. But after 1929, more of these become general hospitals. Uh, they're funded by local authorities. And the majority of their patients are people with chronic diseases, the elderly, the infirm, people whose conditions were felt to be not easy to cure or not curable at all. And you see some really quite interesting differences across place. So in Leeds, both the voluntary hospitals and the local council hospitals have a very strong representation from elite women or local women in running their hospitals in a city in which women work extensively and there is a sort of strong maternity service. Uh, where just down the road in Sheffield, which is a, a sort of a steel town, a much more masculine environment, women are far less important in running the hospital, either at the voluntary level or in the local authority uh, provisions. The deficiencies in the system meant that most people's welfare needs were never met. That's Julie Mathias, medical historian and author of A Social History of Sickness in London. As in previous centuries, charities were expected to act as a version of the big society in providing welfare support to those living in relative to absolute poverty. At the turn of the 20th century, the Liberal government did begin to introduce a series of welfare reforms that gave the state more responsibility for people's social and medical needs. These included the, the Workers' Compensation Act in 1906, which offered a compensation to anyone injured at work followed by the introduction of the old age pensions. And in, in 1911, the National Insurance Act was passed that provided manual workers or people earning less than £160 a year with an insurance against sickness and unemployment. But these reforms did not go far enough to reach the needs of most working class people in times of sickness and, and, and unemployment. One of the most noteworthy features of pre-NHS hospitals was that it was nurses who had the day-to-day -day responsibility for medical care. Doctors were few and far between. The biggest problem that hospitals encounter is the same one that they encounter today, which is waiting lists. People want to go to hospital. Increasingly, from the First World War onwards, hospitals become popular. One uh, hospital manager describes it as people getting the hospital habit after the war. And so there's an increasing number of people who are referred to hospitals, and hospitals just simply don't have the space to accommodate them all. Even in a big system like Britain, there's just not enough hospital beds, and there possibly never will be. So we end up with a situation where waiting lists are a real issue for the voluntary hospitals, but at the same time, people are still reluctant to use the spare capacity that does exist in the old poor law system. And you see across the 1930s, different institutions or different authorities trying to do deals between the poor law hospitals and the voluntary hospitals to accommodate different types of patient and to kind of divide divide those up. There are always staffing problems. They struggle, particularly in the 1930s, to recruit enough nurses. They increasingly have to work on attracting nurses to come and work. So you see the development of new blocks of uh, nursing accommodation 
nurses' homes, which are advertised as having you know, single rooms, no interference from matron, your own opportunities to wash and dry your hair, um, sort of various different ways in which you know, the attempts to attract additional staff. There are problems with cross-infection, particularly up until the 1920s where infectious disease can appear in a hospital and run through it really very quickly, uh, particularly with uh, children, but also with less so, but occasionally with adults as well. And this then means that wards have to be closed, and as we already know, there's already pressure on hospitals. So that causes, a, again, a considerable range of issues. But by the 30s, a lot of these things are being dealt with. Um, isolation units within general hospitals are coming more common, the transfer of patients between the various parts of the system help. And so it is sort of by the 30s much easier to contain the impacts of things like the spread of infection across an institution. During the Second World War, there was a big desire to see a sort of never again ideal that we should look to use the Second World War to really create a new, better future. And the strong part on that better future was going to be improved welfare. In 1942, a man named William Beveridge, who was an economist, published a report which set a plan for after the war, if England had won. The Beveridge report was a crusade against the five giant evils of want, disease, ignorance, squalor and idleness. When the report was first published, thousands upon thousands of people queued on this sort of bitter cold December day to obtain a copy. As word has sort of got around that it was really, really exciting stuff for kind of like ordinary people of Britain. Beveridge's mission was to create a true welfare state which would include a national health service where, whereby everyone could benefit from the same level of health provision, including hospitals, dentistry, GP service. And this will be provided free of charge and financed out of workers' taxation or national insurance. When the Labour Party won in 1945, they do win, broadly speaking, on the promise of a universal national health service. And over the early period of their government, it's one of their priorities. And, and Iron Bevan focuses on producing a national health service, which will be fully national, universal and free at the point of delivery. On the 4th of July 1948, for the first time ever, Britain had a national health service. It was very literally a life-changing moment for millions of ordinary people. I love this quote here, which is, From cradle to grave, we shall look after you. This was a wonderful expression that became the front page headlines of the Daily Mirror newspaper on the 2nd of December 1942. It is, of course, referring to one of the biggest turning points in the history of Britain in creating a national health service for everybody, no matter how rich or how poor they were. When the NHS sets up, there are not very many doctors working in hospitals and there is real shortage across much of the country, particularly in the north and in rural areas where consultants are relatively thin on the ground. And this is one of the things which the NHS has to develop is an extensive new cadre of doctors. Not everyone wanted to see a national health service. But as you can imagine, not everyone was so enthusiastic about the system, especially the doctors themselves, remembering that doctors had a, you know, almost complete autonomy over the patients in terms of, you know, what they charged them and actually if they wished to attend to someone or not. So, you know, it was a case of like, oh, 
I might not like the look of you, I won't actually give you any treatment. So they saw the NHS as an attempt to sort of decrease in a way their kind of livelihoods and rights so much that something in the region of like just 10% of doctors were actually in favour of it. Simultaneously, the Conservative government howled it as a complete curse. They argued that it virtually made redundant the voluntary organisations, which up until that time had been the main supplier of healthcare for Britain's needy. Yet despite observation, it instantly proved immensely popular, more than they had actually understood it to be. And the demand was very, very high at this time. The establishment of the NHS basically doubles the minimum, doubles the demand for health services in Britain. Before 1946, roughly half the population have access to a general practitioner at a free or reduced cost, and roughly half the population have access to a hospital bed at a reduced or free basis. The NHS allows the whole population to have access to both of those sets of services, so doubling demand basically overnight. And as a result of that, the NHS has to focus in its first 10 years at building up its staff and building up the ability to actually treat all of these patients, particularly at a general practice level. So a lot of the the early investment is in uh, improving general practice and improving staffing in the NHS. And it really is another 15 years before we see a plan for hospitals. The 1962 hospital plan produced by the then Health Minister Enoch Powell envisages a huge restructuring of the hospital system around the district hospital. And this kicks off in the early 60s and works through. It's one of the few things that survives various austerity packages in the late 60s and early 70s and emerges really by the end of the 1970s where you see huge, uh, significant numbers of new hospitals opening across the country. Despite the improvements of the NHS, it was constantly held back by one thing, money. Although access to healthcare had vastly been improved in in the short term, there was big gaps in the system. And and this was because post-war Britain did not have a, a lot of money to spend, especially the kind of money that was needed to actually create a very effective medical system. So if we take, for example, hospitals. So from 1948, the government was responsible for nearly 3,000 hospitals, which included voluntary hospitals as well as city hospitals. And, you know, that was a really, really big job, especially as many of them, which had been built in the 19th century, by this time, new sort of medical equipment and techniques had changed vastly and they desperately needed updating. In a similar way, GP surgeries also needed modernising, but equally GPs themselves. It's quite interesting because research that was carried out uh, during the 1950s discovered that over 25% of Britain's general practitioners were unsatisfactory and did very little to keep up to date with kind of new developments and so forth. And this is because more people were were attending their local surgery. You know, waiting time was obviously increasing. I mean, this very much echoes a lot today, I know. It was increasing, but also the quality of the care that was actually given to them during their appointments was also decreasing at the same time. Historians have written since then that there was this feeling very much that whilst they were providing quite big efforts to sort of make medicine more effective, the system was very much based upon 
just treating sort of the diseases or treating the illnesses that existed then rather than actually preventing as well. However, by the 1960s, the government did begin to make some changes. One of the, the first missions was to sort of spread hospitals out more evenly throughout Britain as most of them uh, were in London and other major cities. This was followed by the introduction of a GP charter, which encouraged GPs to work in more group practice. So rather than just work as individuals, which had been the case for many, if you kind of worked as a collective, you had more opportunity to sort of to keep up to date with certain developments and continue your training. So this all become more effective. To make the system effective, the government had to sort of manage, in a way, the NHS rather rather than just fund it, which eventually led to a notable improvement in the standard of care that we obviously appreciate very much today. Before the National Health Service, my family subsisted. After the National Health Service in 1948, my family began to thrive. That's Stephen McGann, star of Call the Midwife, science communicator and author of Flesh and Blood, A History of My Family in Seven Maladies. And it marks this incredible turning point in my family's life chances and why I'm talking to you today. It's as simple as that. And for the NHS, as an institution, it organised things to give, for the first time, a mass safety net that said to every human being in the country, there is only so low health-wise that you can sink before we grab you and do all we can to hold you above that minimum. So you have a net. There is a net now that stops you, that keeps you safe. And with that all the greatest things could happen or the best possible potentials of a society can be realised. Stephen McGann shares the story of his father, whose life spanned the era before and after the NHS and the widespread availability of antibiotics. He was essentially what they later called a latchkey kid. So she would be working for 15, 16 hours a day and the kids would run ragged. He was a bookish child, but someone who had no chance to further his education. At some point when he was a child, he got a strep throat. He got a sore throat. Now, back then and still today, statistically, what you do with a sore throat nowadays is you go to your doctor, you say, oh, my sore throat, and they check it. Yeah, it's infected. Give you some antibiotics and you take them home and it, it fixes your throat up. No one thinks about it. They pop a few pills, they get on with their day, go back to school. Before the era in 1924, there were no antibiotics. There was no penicillin. So what then happened to my father at some point is he got this sore throat, which turned into rheumatic fever. With a small percentage of kids with this strep throat would develop rheumatic fever. A small percentage of those kids, because it was untreatable by antibiotics, would develop something called rheumatic heart disease which it would start to eat away at the mitral valve in that child's heart. Remarkably, my father, unknown to him, developed a bit of rheumatic heart disease, rheumatic fever and then rheumatic heart disease. He went on to be a commando in the Second World War, so he did commando training. He was an incredibly fit man. But nibble, 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 this ancient disease from before the age of the NHS actually took my father's life when he was 60 because his mitral valve collapsed. If he'd had antibiotics in the 20s, my father would likely have still been here to not long ago. And that's just the way it went. The significance of free medical care had a profound impact on the whole population, but particularly the working classes. 
Taking a mental audit of your own family's health without the NHS can be very revealing. I would be dead without antibiotics, without the NHS. My wife would be dead. My sister, who spent six weeks of her life with pneumonia as a baby in the NHS, would be dead. She's now a government lawyer. My family would be decimated by the effects of non-free healthcare because we were working class. And considering what we all are or were, the changes and the abilities of it were incalculable. So there's that. There's that simple change to possibilities and potentials. There's also another wonderful thing covered in Call the Midwife, which was by bringing everything under a big tent, you formalised, if you like, big medicine. So after the war, they owed Britain a land fit for heroes. And people like my father, who'd, who'd bled on a beach in Normandy, and whose life was ironically saved by penicillin, and he came home, and they, you know, the consensus was then that we were going to try and build some of this land a bit fitter for heroes, even in austerity Britain. And one of the effects of it was it, it brought everything under the umbrella. So it's not simply further to the Victorian idea of health and the advances made then. The 20th century, certainly in the mid 20th century in Britain, we could do vaccination campaigns big style. And later on, we could do mass X-ray campaigns, going around in x-ray vans and screening people for cancers and women. For We started those after the war. We were able then to eradicate the demons which had affected my father's generation and before for centuries and centuries. One of those demons was smallpox. Despite a vaccine having been created in 1796, it was still a huge blight on global health. To tackle it, a global solution was needed. But the question of what international health might look like was still being asked. Enter the World Health Organization. The early forays into international health of what would become the WHO really relied on a couple of different initiatives. One were networks of, of public health scientists. So organizations like the Pasteur Institute, centered in Paris, but it had local nodes and centers all around the world, a corollary in Britain of the Lister Institute, and then an international organization of the International Health Division of the Rockefeller Foundation, money out of the U.S., really did form the nexus of, in the early 20th century, of what was international health. By the 1920s, World War I had produced another international division out of the League of Nations called the League of Nations Health Organization. And, and this organization from the 1920s and the interwar years focused on some new kinds of initiatives that were important for global health, ones that you know, in many ways still remain with us as initiatives today. Nutrition, children's health, rural sanitation projects, and then specific campaigns against malaria and sleeping sickness. But it's pretty clear, too, that this interwar group was Eurocentric and was still playing on the heels and the networks of European colonialism. And it wasn't until the following World War II that the WHO was created in 1948. And its mission, interestingly, was the attainment of all peoples of the highest possible level of health without distinction of race, religion, politics, or economics. And the WHO from its beginnings had four real pillars, disease surveillance, anti-epidemic campaigns, disease control, and health system reform. 
And, and so in, in theory, the WHO in the 1950s was part of this important global network of public health science. But in reality, it's real clear from the scholars that have, that have studied the early origins of the WHO that the WHO was predicated on those earlier, very Eurocentric imperial legacies. And really it showed in the first decade of this organization, the umbrella of international health was really often, if you look at the language carefully of the WHO reports, was to assist quote unquote developing countries of what we now would call the global south. And it shows this kind of Eurocentric roots of the 19th century civilizing mission. By the 1980s, the WHO came under incredible criticism for inefficiency and irrelevance. In the 1950s, the WHO began a smallpox eradication campaign, a program, and that was again on the heels of several other failed uh, disease-specific projects. And and that's sort of been the history of the WHO that is enormously strained. And really this broader kind of concept of how international health should work and function in reality. Should it be investing uh, at local level of health infrastructure and attacking things like systemic health inequality? Or should international health be implementing disease-specific top-down targeted programs. And that's always been a tension with international health in, in general and with the history of the WHO in particular. So the smallpox eradication campaign was very narrowly focused on eradicating smallpox from, from the beginning, and it almost never even happened. The reason that the, that the smallpox eradication campaign even started was because of the re-entering into the World Health Assembly by the Soviet Union and one of the key members from from their group who supported a smallpox campaign, even though the malaria and the hookworm campaigns were really failing at that time. So the smallpox eradication campaign from 1957 to 1975, just to give you an example, used more than 2.5 billion in funds. I mean, it was just staggering at the time, the amount of money that was invested. And the keys to the smallpox eradication campaign were systematic vaccination, systematic disease surveillance and containment, and how this worked on the ground, and it was particularly focused on reporting from India and from Africa, was a weekly reporting of cases. And then areas that showed smallpox cases, WHO would work with local officials and target that area and vaccinate and try to be full compliant with vaccination. And then any cases that that remained they would use disease surveillance and then containment and further vaccination. And, and it really is one of the most remarkable instances of global health in history that, that this one of the most deadliest diseases that humans have ever encountered was successfully eradicated. The last naturally occurring case of smallpox was in 1977 and the WHO declared its eradication in 1980. It was and is one of the greatest medical achievements in history. Let's now spotlight one of the most widespread health issues of modern times, cancer. So cancer is basically a biological phenomenon where cells in the body start to multiply out of control. That's Dr Kat Arney, science writer and author of Rebel Cell, Cancer, Evolution and the Science of Life. And there are various stages of it. You can have cells growing into a small tumour, a lump, 
or you can have cells in the bloodstream, immune cells proliferating, and that leads to leukemias and lymphomas. And then the next stage of cancer is where that lump starts to grow, cells start to break away, it breaks through the what we call the basement membrane, the sort of molecular cling film that's wrapped around your various tissues. And these cells start to travel through the bloodstream and start to form new tumours elsewhere. And we call that process metastasis. So that's really what cancer is. It's cells that have gone rogue. They've started to multiply out of control. They've started to move around, do things they're not meant to be doing. And ultimately, if these cells aren't controlled, treated, checked in some way, they can lead to death because they basically proliferate so much that the body can't cope with this this burden of all these rogue cells. The word cancer comes from the Greek word for crab, karkinos, and it has been with us for a very long time. Well, I want to start by going back a bit further and not just focusing on humans because cancer is a very, very deep and ancient disease. And we find it across all branches of the tree of life, you know, from bats and birds and reptiles and toads and everything all the way through to mammals and to humans. So this is a a disease with deep evolutionary roots, which tells us that it's very old. And we can find evidence of cancer in the fossil record. So we can find dinosaurs with evidence of cancer in their bones. There's a 240 million year old turtle fossil where researchers have found evidence of a tumour in the fossil. So this is a very, very ancient disease. The earliest written reference to a cancer being surgically removed was by Herodotus in 440 BC. He details how Atosa, the Queen of Persia, had a breast tumour removed by an enslaved Greek man named Democedes. So there are records of doctors who've tried to treat cancer for many thousands of years. There are Egyptian records, papyri, describing what to do with various lumps and bumps. Some of the best records we have from antiquity are from the Greek doctors, people like Hippocrates, who talk about treating breast tumours in various ways. There's one technique called the fire drill, which sounds absolutely horrendous, which is basically burning tumours. But most of these cases, the sad fact is that the sort of the the documents end by saying, well, there is no cure. So for many, many, many thousands of years of human history, we knew this disease existed. People had various goes at treating it, but there was no real progress. Surgery has been around for as long as humans have been making tools, but it wasn't until the 19th century that surgeons overcame the three main challenges when conducting operations, bleeding, pain and infection. And surgery is really the first... I suppose, modern, if you want to call it that, treatment for cancer, where you can cut out tumours if you can see them. Obviously, you can only cut out tumours if you can find them. So we still weren't very good at detecting cancer that's deep inside the body. And certainly that's no good for blood cancers. But surgery was pretty much the only method of treating cancer from sort of the, the 18th century onwards. And then at the turn of the 20th century, there was something very important that was discovered, and that was x-rays. And x-rays not only enabled people to see inside the body, and you could start to see evidence of cancer inside the body, but it also led to the development of radiotherapy, which is using x-rays to treat cancer. And x-rays were discovered in 1895, and in less than a decade after that, people were starting to try and treat cancer with radiation. I mean, the irony there is is that radiation also causes cancer as well, so you have to be very careful with it. As we get closer to the present, the story of cancer continues to evolve. 
So in the middle of the 20th century, we start to see the dawn of chemotherapy. And this is using drugs to treat cancer. I mean, for, for many years, people had tried all sorts of lotions and potions, none of which actually worked. And you can go back to the turn of the, the 20th century, you know, the Daily Mail in 1900, writing about various cures for cancer that don't work. But it was by uh, the 1950s, a lot of the chemotherapy was led by a, a children's cancer doctor called Sidney Farber in America, who started testing combinations of drugs to treat children with leukaemia. And uh, he saw what we call flickering remissions. You know, some of these kids started to get better and then got worse again. But in the end, they hit on combinations that worked. And that really triggered the idea that if you could just find the right drugs and the right combinations we could treat cancer. And now in more recent decades, we've got the sort of the genetic revolution where we can look at tumours and look at the faulty genes and molecules that are inside them and try and find more rational targeted therapies that can really home in on those cancer cells. There is a problem. A lot of these drugs don't provide long-term cures. They may work for, for months, in some cases years, but some of these treatments are not cures, particularly for advanced cancer. So we still have a problem there. And then there are some other exciting innovations like immunotherapy. So these are drugs that stimulate the immune system to recognise and to destroy cancer cells. Right now, they don't work for everyone. And there's still a lot more we need to know about how the immune system works. But that's a very exciting area for the future of cancer, for sure. As we said during the very first episode, this is a history of medicine, not the history. There are so many stories still to be told. The AIDS pandemic of the 20th century, the history of mental health and its treatment, to name just a couple. What we hope is that this series has given you the thirst to find out more. We'll leave you with the words of Dr Matt Pope, who featured in the first episode about the sharing of knowledge. Until next time. So in evolutionary terms, if we're seeing that chimpanzees seem to understand the medical properties of particular plants that grow, that can help them with parasites, that can help them with potentially with pain or other internal disorders. Well, if primates have that basic understanding, what's that going to be like in terms of our evolutionary history, you know, where we have incredible degrees of shared knowledge, we have culture, we have years of experiment and discovery with all kinds of plants and materials. And as we can see in chimpanzees, this knowledge is not like knowledge that a chimpanzee is born with. It's not like an inherent knowledge. It's a knowledge that's been passed on to that chimpanzee by an older chimpanzee. It's culture. And this is really when we should think about medicine sitting, we should think about treatment sitting, not within the realm of kind of like kind of scientific classical knowledge, but within culture and cultural transmission, because that's what really keeps this knowledge moving on. With thanks to today's guests, Professor Barry Doyle, Julie Mathias, Dr. Kat Arney, Stephen McGann, and Dr. Matt Pope. This series was written, narrated, and produced by myself, Rebecca Radil. It was edited and produced by Peter Curry, and was brought to you by Sick to Death. <laughs>